Hello everyone and a warm welcome back to the Kind Mess podcast. We're here with Jad and Mike talking about human suffering and compassion and the messy lives we live at times. We're joined today by Kerry Athanasiadis, psychologist, yoga teacher and the director of BU Psychology and Counseling in Camberwell. Um Kerry's got 10 years of experience working in the mental health field, and she works with both adults and adolescents at her practice with some other psychologists. Uh, She's got a passion for working with young people and uh, is trained in a variety of different modalities, and we're wishing her a warm welcome on this very warm Melbourne evening. Welcome, Kerry. Thank you so much, Judd, and I'm particularly impressed that you were able to pronounce my surname. (laughs) Was it okay? Yeah, you did a fantastic job. My my primary school was about 50% um, Greek Australians and, um, well, probably not quite that, but all of my friends certainly were. So I feel like if there's a little bit of a natural neck for it, but I don't always get it. Well done, time. sir. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. First off, we'll get started with the general question that we bring to all the people on this show. And that is, we like to explore how our lives are full of mess and suffering at times. We all go through difficulties and difficult circumstances. Um, And because you're a psychologist with some training in this sort of area, we really wanted to hear sort of how some of your skills have influenced the way you've approached suffering and struggle in life. And yeah, we're just wondering if you wanted to share any example of a difficulty you've experienced and how you've approached that. Yeah, um, they're all wonderful questions. And I guess what I would say first is I'm a human first and a psychologist second. <laughs> and my experiences as a human have also helped to inform my um, practice as a psychologist and vice versa, obviously the skills that I've gained in working in mental health have helped me with my human suffering as well. Um, But it's a little bit of both there. Um, I am happy to share a story of suffering. It's it's a sort of recent one. Um, So last year, uh, as we know, last year was a tough year for a lot of, well, most of us, right, with the pandemic and everything that happened. Um, But I also um, got diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So For those listeners who might not know what that is, um, Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease. So um, what happens is that the body or what what they think happens because they don't quite know that the body um, starts to attack the thyroid gland and the thyroid gland um, is responsible for releasing hormones into the body that help with energy production, uh, metabolism, mood regulation, temperature regulation, um, and a whole lot of other things, but they're the main things. And so last year, basically, I guess in the lead up, what was happening was obviously I was um, working quite a lot, as most people in their health or helping profession were. Um, And I I just thought I was burnt out. Like I was like, oh, I must be working too much. I just need to slow down. Um, I started to notice symptoms like fatigue and brain fog. I was really forgetful. Unless I wrote things down, I would just like completely forget. And I'm pretty good with stuff like that. And I started noticing I was like missing appointments and things. And I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. I must just have a lot on my mind or a lot on my plate. And then, yeah, started feeling really cold all the time, which was unusual. Um, Unexplained weight gain, headaches, mood changes, like, like it was a bit of everything. Let's just say that. And so, yeah, obviously I went to the doctors and said, you know, this and this is going on. Um, Meanwhile, I knew that there was a family history there because my mum or my my whole mum's side of the family have thyroid um, issues. So mum had thyroid cancer when I was two. So I was aware that there was um, a history there. So I did um, actually request for that test to be done. I was actually getting them annually, but because of the pandemic, I'd kind of put it off for a bit. 
Um, and so, yeah, the blood test came back and said that my thyroid levels were abnormal um, and I also had a thyroid nodule. Um, so I had an ultrasound done, came up showing that there was a nodule, so I had to get that um, checked out by an um, endocrine surgeon. Um, thankfully, the nodule is benign, so that means it's not cancerous and it's just something that I have to monitor. Um, but, yeah, the thyroid symptoms, are basically the treatment for it is, is pretty straightforward. It's just medication that helps to rectify the balance. So I got onto that and I also linked in with an integrative medicine doctor um, who really helped me with making some other diet and lifestyle changes, so things like going gluten-free, dairy-free, um, and incorporating foods into my diet that, with the evidence that we have, suggests that it might help to improve the condition. Um, I guess in terms of other, well, do either of you have any questions before I keep going? I just keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> of I am constantly curious constantly curious Kerry um, sometimes to my detriment but um, I, I am what I'm hearing is a significant paradigm shift and as I've said on past episodes when I was teaching kids in prisons and stuff one of the most poignant quotes I got from a kid was why do I want to be in the present moment if the present moment sucks um yeah, how did your experience of mindfulness go when with with all of this stuff just kind of loading up at once? Yeah, great question. Well, I guess I was forced to really listen to my body. Like I thought that I had really good insight into myself and that I was pretty self-aware. I actually, yeah, I should say I am pretty self-aware. Like I am, obviously I noticed these symptoms. I was really quick to pick up on them. Um, but however, I guess... I probably wasn't listening to some of the symptoms that were telling me to slow down. And mm. um, I was I was kind of not maybe not justifying or minimising it, but I was kind of saying to myself, well, it's a pandemic and everyone's going through a hard time at the moment. Everyone's suffering. And I was kind of maybe normalising it too much or kind of thinking that it was a normal response to what was going on, ironically, because I was like, well, yeah, I'm overworking probably just need to slow down. I had just finished my yoga teacher training. We were wedding planning. I was scaling oh up. My Lord. No. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot going on. And so, and yeah, and obviously <laughs> pandemic, my husband works in the events industry. So it was oh. a stressful time and it was for everyone. So I kind of just went, well, it must just be COVID. And yeah, I probably didn't do anything about it until it was not, it wasn't too late, but it got towards the end of the year before I actually went to the doctors and asked for the test. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question about being. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned when we discussed before we went on air that you tend to be, have tendencies towards being a type A personality. Um, I know someone else who has a tendency to be a type A personality and, and, and um, it, it offer it, I guess the tricky landscape there is type A personalities like to have a concept of control to, to use the term loosely. I mean, wow, you were served up a big bowl of, you can't control this. Um, and what was that experience like for you? It's bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah having to come to terms with my vulnerability as a human being um it was my first experience of having a significant health issue too like prior to mm. I'd been in really good health well hadn't had any major health issues and so this was like oh wow I am human after all and there was a lot of grief there um and, and it's funny because Part of this is from the actual thyroid disorder itself. Like I was crying every day. Yes, um, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're kind of um, you're emotional, but then it's loaded up with this thyroid that just kind of wants to do its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. So it was, yeah, kind of acknowledging that. Okay, I'm crying. It's okay. Let myself cry. I'd, I'd just allow it to kind of flow. And mm. I guess making sense of it too, saying it's okay, I'm 
grieving. My body's not doing what it's supposed to be doing and that's hard and this is a time of suffering and it's okay for me to be feeling this way considering what's going on for my body but also all the external things as well that were going on that I still had to try and navigate, um, which we're all still trying to navigate, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) True. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, it was really hard, like, I guess, just coming to terms with that. And also, I guess, the fact that um, in my role as a psychologist, I'm having to hold space for others in their time of suffering. And so I had to take time off when I needed it, when I felt that perhaps I wouldn't be able to hold space for others because I was going through too much of my own stuff. And that was hard as well to kind of just admit that to myself, that you know, it's really tough at the moment and I need to prioritise my own health and my recovery. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I guess to answer your question, it was really hard. It still is hard. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I think as well you, you touched on the point of, you know, holding space for your clients as well and um, working as, you know, a naturopath and a counsellor as well. I'm always amazed at how the emotional impact sometimes of empathically connecting with others can can take its toll sometimes. Like we, we've obviously trained in a lot of skills on how to manage that and recognize that and offer ourselves compassion and talk about it in supervision. But when our own bodies are suffering, um, to sit with the experience of another suffering, can, it, it poses an additional layer of challenge. How did you respond to that specifically? And also I'm wondering how maybe yoga and the body helped in, in, in that sense as well. With regards to your first questions, just to clarify, do you mean was it um, – actually, can you just repeat that first part of the question because I don't think I – Yeah, that, that confused me too, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was alluding to the like the mind body connection. So we emotions are in the body and our clients often have very strong emotional experiences and we resonate with that. We empathically connect with that. And when our own body is going through a lot of turmoil, that can sometimes you know it's hard then to stay connected with their pain in a way that there's enough kind of separation that we're not drained by the experience and was sort of taking a step back, not just about I've got too much work on my plate, but it's also about the type of work we do as mm. therapists is, 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 has got this other layer of difficulty in terms of that empathic connection. Yeah, absolutely. The nature of our work is such that um, we are building therapeutic relationships with our clients and um, not necessarily feeling their feelings because I find that I can't be effective if I'm feeling my client's feelings. I need to have some space and distance there and mm. I guess that's a bit of mindfulness too. So bringing awareness to what that emotion is, naming it but not actually just being all consumed by it. I mm. find that when I work with my clients it's a little bit of a distraction as well, like which good and bad but you know when I was working with them it helped to give me some distance from what was going on for myself you know to be able to focus on their their suffering or yeah being of service and supporting them through something was actually helpful for me like on the days when I wasn't too tired and was actually able to work because the fatigue was sometimes so debilitating that I couldn't actually work or get out of bed but on the days when I was feeling well enough, yeah, it was actually helpful because I was like, okay, well, I can um, focus on their problems <laughs> instead of my own, if that makes sense. So that's, yeah. And that in terms of the second part of the question, the yoga, um, I found, I, I, yeah, I do believe there's a mind-body connection there. And I do think like the yoga tra- teacher training um, was so transformational, like, on every level, like it breaks you open. And I, I do also wonder if that was part of this. I'm not saying that I manifested it, but it kind of just like came up as a result of some stuff that came up through the yoga teacher training as well. And maybe that was a good thing. Like I see that as actually a positive that I was able to actually heal through some stuff that um, perhaps I otherwise wouldn't have 
come to terms with or addressed or acknowledged if it hadn't been that for that experience. So I do kind of see it as a bit of a silver lining that that experience helped me to grow, to connect more authentically to myself and to the experience of suffering, um, which then helped me to be able to connect better with my clients too and their experience of suffering. So I don't know if I've answered your question there with regards to the empathy question, but yeah, like definitely going through my own suffering helped to bring me closer to other people's suffering. Mm. That's that's a question I've asked clinicians before. I'm always fascinated by that. I know um, from the receiving end, when, whenever I've been in therapy, it's perhaps it's just my personal thing, but I've always felt that there's more of a embodiment of empathy with someone who's had a, a rough a rough trot, a, a, you know, a bumpy ride, that always contributed to my sense. I think my sense of safety yeah. kind of helped me remove that sense of a power dynamic. And in essence is kind of one of the underpinning concepts of this whole podcast. And, and when Jad and I teach mindful self-compassion, it's, it's to say, look, you know, we're messes. We're just trying to be compassionate messes. Yeah. The mess... <laughs> don't love to love to lie to you people and snap my fingers and say the mess is all gone but um you know such change occurs through just becoming compassionate um so that is obviously the big the big c word is always a huge question for us on this program i mean there's there's mindfulness and there's self compassion yeah. so i hear already that there was a lot of self compassionate actions I guess, in built into your practice, you know, being able to sort of say, listen, I'm tired. I can't, I can't give today. Um, We're often better at suggesting that our friends and others take rest and recuperate and prioritize themselves. We're never quite as good as directing that wise balm to ourselves. I'm curious about where, what the role of compassion, particularly self-compassion in this bumpy ride that you had. You mentioned mindfulness. You sort of understood that there was something going on. Was self-compassion something that came naturally to you or has it been something that's kind of unfolded or grown in the process of your suffering? Um, that's a really good question, actually. I think, well, first of all, I want to, say that yeah you're right about that first part what you said with the common humanity and how when yeah when I work with clients when it's appropriate I do like to self-disclose a little bit like when it's appropriate of course because I think then people realize that when they're not alone that we're all human and we will all at some point have a moment of so time of suffering and Mm. that just because I'm a psychologist it doesn't mean that I don't have times of suffering too and I think that does, like you said, it is, it's comforting, but it also helps them to feel safer to be able to share their story of suffering as well, to know that, okay, I'm talking to someone who has had her own experiences of suffering, that Mm. um, there's a deeper level of understanding there, I guess, but everyone's story of suffering is unique to them and we can't compare. And I think everyone's on their own journey. So Um, yeah suffering is subjective in that sense so I don't want to say that my story of suffering is going to be the same as anyone else's it's yeah it's my story I guess and they'll have their story and it's honoring their story I think that's important Um, and then yeah with the second part of the question no compassion does not come naturally for me (laughs) definitely not Um, it's a practice Um, there's two parts to it I think for me like yeah I did the mindful self-compassion training with um, Chris Germer and it was with Kathleen Cato and I really enjoyed that and I got so much value out of it it was amazing and then I did some supervision with Kathleen too um, which was yeah, we, amazing. we love we love Kathleen she's great yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but then yeah I guess it's it's a regular practice and I guess for me like going through this it's it's much easier to give myself compassion during the good times <laughs> <laughs> um, than it is when I am going through a time of suffering. And I think, yeah, most people can relate to that, I think, like even my clients. Um, it's, yeah, our natural human response during a time of suffering is to go into self-criticism, self-blame, shame. And for me... Oh, it's, so it's yeah. not just me. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. So I think then it's noticing that, being able to catch it. We can't change what we don't notice. And once we pick up on it, then it's how do we respond to ourselves and to the situation? And that's well, that's the whole point of it, isn't it? Like we don't have control over the original event. It's what happens afterwards, how we respond to that situation and to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. How our default neural network just does its thing and um, we time travel with our suffering. We're so clever, aren't we? Um, the unique the unique ability that we have to be the attacker and the attacked. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned uh, you studied with with wonderful people MSC. That leads me to ask, how did you how, what was your pathway in finding MSC and then saying, listen, I want to teach this stuff? I found out about it through a, actually it was through a friend who was renting a room at the same place that I was at in Camberwell. And she said, oh, there's this great training on, you might um, like it. And I looked into it and I said, yeah, this sounds amazing. There was another colleague that was going as well. And yeah, I was just, I wasn't expecting it to be as like phenomenal as what it was. And just, I remember sitting in the room and everyone just, like especially when we did, I think it was the the compassion with equanimity meditation, Good. and there were like tears running down people's faces. Like you know, well, you know, mental health clinicians, psychologists, people in the helping profession, and it was just so lovely to share that experience with others as well. Like and to go through that together, and yeah, it was it was really good. I really enjoyed it. And I and I do enjoy using it with my clients too. Like most of my clients really resonate with mindful self-compassion. Yeah, it's a pretty mind-blowing program and it and it reminds me of one of the quotes from the workbook. I think it's the the way to practice compassion is with wet eyes. And for for me that that the teacher training and ongoing is kind of really allowed me to feel very much more deeply into um some of those painful moments in my life but also allowed me to sit with the suffering of others in a in a different way because i've got this skill i can use in the moment to kind of self-regulate and to be present with it yeah yeah absolutely i'm curious now as well um how do you bring yoga at all in to your work with your clients yeah, not asana practice yet. So I finished my yoga teacher training a week before lockdown one of 2020. So I, and I didn't do the online teaching stuff. I wanted to be able to do it in person and to have that experience. So yeah, I haven't actually taught um, any asana practice as yet. I do still want to, um, but most definitely like the breathing, the pranayama practices and the meditations are definitely a big part of my work with clients. Yeah, I think, you know, um, we live in such a culture disconnected from the body that um, I'm always excited when I hear of, you know, and it's becoming more and more common for um what was once very distinct kind of disciplines like psychology versus physiology versus um, physiotherapy or whatever, the body was kind of always disconnected. And now there seems to be much more of a kind of holistic sort of approach to um, understanding human suffering and what we can do about it and learning how to be in the body. I think yoga is such a powerful practice for learning how to kind of sit with discomfort, but also find joy in, in movement in, in the body. I was just going to say that um, sometimes you can't talk your way out of things or think your way out of things. Sometimes, especially with trauma, a lot of the time it does live in the body and um, working with the body is definitely fundamental to the process of he healing, like working with the whole person, not just the thoughts, not just the feelings, but also some of the physical symptoms that come up and I guess integrating it and being able to see that it's all connected um yeah for sure mm. it's an interesting concept we had a chat with the queen of msc in this country and she's obviously extremely uncomfortable with that term but she's my queen tina gibson and um yeah one of the tinaisms that i will often incorporate into teaching or talking about this stuff is the concept of of neck down let's just see what's see what's going on in the body but Kerry I'm always excited you're you've been a clinician for quite a while now um why do you think 
self-compassion is such a foreign concept in our society. Um, Australians, I feel like, can be very compassionate to others. Like we, you know, I use that term broadly, whatever that means, Australians. Um, but as a, as, a, as a culture or a community, we tend to be good with the idea of helping others. We tend to do that by default. Not so great in terms of our compassion towards ourselves. Um, with, with many years of practice, what, what are your thoughts? Why do you think it's such a foreign concept? That's a good question. I mean, yeah, you mentioned the cultural stuff for sure. Like in Western culture, we're kind of conditioned to perfect, produce, um, yeah, show up all the time, I guess, overwork ourselves. Um, And, yeah, a lot of that stuff just gets internalised. It's drummed into us when we're growing up at school um, and then obviously when we go off to work. Um, we live in a culture that's, yeah, that prioritises producing, I guess. And so, Yes, yes. Yeah, and I think it's, yeah, being mindful of that, but then it's also sometimes it's a biological thing as well. So um, the mammalian caretaking system is designed, like I think you alluded to that, it's for caring for others. The system is obviously there and we can direct it to the self, but it doesn't necessarily come naturally for everyone. I think some people are actually good at being compassionate towards themselves. But, yeah, for me, I, I know that it's something that I have to practice. It doesn't come naturally and I know that that's the case for others too. So I don't know. What's your opinion? I'd, I'd be curious to know what you think as well, What, why you think we're not naturally compassionate. I tend to be quite reductive in in my thoughts on these things. I just think that so much of the benefit of mindfulness and in particularly self-compassion, I have accrued through the application of skill sets. Yeah. So practices informal and formal. I was kind of full up in terms of theory. I'd read lots of the books, which I loved, but um, I needed skill sets that I could improve I could apply in particularly in moments of duress. So for me, long reductive statement. Can reductive statements be long but still reductive? I don't know. <laughs> can you ask a question yourself and then answer it? Maybe. I think you can. Great. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just think we don't teach these skill sets in yeah. in community, in schools. We say to kids in schools, we, we say, concentrate but we don't really teach them the skill sets to do so. Um, and I think that's my theory, that that the skills, um, you know, a, a, a meta meditation is not something that you're probably going to learn in mainstream educational systems unless you're lucky or unless you have someone in your family that has these skill sets. That's my theory. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And you spoke of a family as well. There's sometimes there's intergenerational traumas that, can happen in families. I know that that's most certainly the case in mine. Um, but I think it is slowly changing. Like I think kids these days are learning to practice mindfulness from a young age. And I wish that I'd done that in primary school. And I think over time, perhaps we will see a shift. I'd like to think so. I, I often see practitioners such as such as yourself as as potentially portals for these skill sets, portals to you know, help people sort of engage in practices that can give them critical insight or critical reflection. Yeah, I do think these these skill sets are expanding or being further propagated. But I don't I don't know what what do you think, Jaddles? Like, what's your experience in terms of like where are the skill sets? Where where are they being taught? What do you think? Well, yeah, I agree with both of what you've said. I think um. I think, you know, as kids, we're, we're taught how to be nice to one another because it's, it's in the out, it's, it's, it's visible, but our own internal dialogue, no one else sees. So we don't get, we don't have that corrected. So if you're a kid who's out there, you know, being mean to another kid, someone's going to say, Hey, that, that person's hurting when you say that, you, you know, that, that's, that's not an okay thing to say, but when it's directed towards ourselves, 
no one else is really he- there to hear it except when it sometimes comes out in like a swear word or whatnot. And and I'm hopeful as well. And, and certainly what Mike and I are hoping from, you know, podcasts like ours and, and other things out there is that as this sort of seed is sown of being kinder to ourselves, it starts to then ripple out through into, into other areas of people's lives. And I was just reflecting on a, a, a recent experience where I, I heard someone at work just saying, oh, shit, I'm such an idiot. And I just kind of warmly said, oh, no, you're not. And normally I might have just like kind of let that go, like, oh, someone's a bit grumpy today or whatever. And I sort of realized, you know, I used to say things like that out loud all the time to myself. And it took a while before I realized, hey, don't be so nasty to yourself, you know. And so it's, it's little things like that where it kind of ripples out. And certainly, you know, the work of what you're doing in, in, in a clinical setting where you're kind of spending, you know, real good amounts of time teaching people these skills, I think, is how it's going to kind of change in a much broader level. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And mm. I think you're right. We all have a, an inner critic. Like when I was running my self-compassion groups before COVID, when we could actually meet in person and with, you know, 10, 10 to 15 people, um, we would do this exercise at the beginning where everyone would write down on like little index cards what their inner critic is saying to them. And I would do it too and so would my co-facilitator. And then we'd um, collect them up and shuffle them just for anonymity. And me and my um, my co-facilitator and I would read them out to each other as if we were saying it to each other. And so that was, it's, it's quite confronting, but it's also quite normalising because a lot of the stuff was just the same, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm stupid, I can't do this or, um, you know, other people are judging me. It was like a lot of it was quite similar and it was like oh everyone was like oh yeah we're all we all have an inner critic like we all have this I'm a psychologist I have an inner critic and so once you know that oh I'm not the only one that feels this way it kind of takes away some of the shame as well like people feel like oh okay well maybe we are all going through this and we all need to catch it and we all need to practice these skills it's not something that comes naturally for some people and not others I think some people have a louder inner critic, I know mine is, and it takes, yeah, a lot of work and practice to ground myself and to catch it and especially, yeah, the imposter syndrome for me is quite strong at various times. Like last year I know it was very strong because I felt that I wasn't showing up as the best version of myself. <laughs> ah. And yeah. Yeah, so it's it's just catching it and being able to say, well, it's okay, like, my 80% is probably, yeah, my 80% might be somebody else's 100% and that's because I've, I've, yeah, got a loud inner critic and I'm quite perfectionistic and it's just being able to acknowledge that and to then give myself permission to show up as I am. Um, yeah, I think that's the hardest part, isn't it, to be able to still show up and step out of your comfort zone and to then challenge some of those unrealistic thoughts and mm. to myself through that process. Yes, yes. I, I sometimes refer to it as the capacity to prosecute absurdity um, and to look back broadly and go, oh, although this came from a survival mechanism, we all know that. Yeah. It's kind of absurd to speak this way to yourself. Yeah. It's kind of absurd to, to walk around uh, as if thoughts are real or truth every time. It's... I'm curious, with your journey, either through your MSc practice or, or training and teaching or through this um, emergent uh, meat grinder of difficulties that have been thrust upon you, has the tone of your inner critic shifted? Yeah, absolutely. Like these days I feel quite comfortable to cancel plans if I'm having an off day, if I'm having a Hashimoto's flare-up, I'll... I'll say it, I'll acknowledge it and I'll share that experience and I won't feel as much shame about it anymore. Like initially when I first got diagnosed, it was quite vulnerable. Like I wouldn't have been able to sit on this podcast and talk about it like I am now. Mm. Um, But now I can say, yeah, like this is something that I'm going through. This is an experience. Um, It's not part of who I am. It's not part of my identity um but I'm happy to share that and I, I will 
yeah, just be honest about it and then also be kind to myself for going through it um, mm. and share that with others too because I think that then helps to take away some of the shame that perhaps other people might feel if they um, need to cancel plans or take an off, you know, a rest day or a mental health day or something like that, like that's okay. So the, the, the voice of the critic or your experience of your inner critic has softened, I guess is what I'm hearing in terms of you tend to have more of a capacity to apply self-compassionate decisions to your, to your experience because of a softening of that critic, I'm curious. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I guess it's a little bit of being more comfortable in my own skin too. Like it's, I think, yeah, it's, it's helped me to love myself more. I know that sounds a bit cliche, but no, no, it, it's helped me to show up authentically and to be like, you know what, like this isn't my fault. Like this has happened. Um, there's a family history there. There's a genetic component to it. Um, it got triggered up because I burnt myself out last year and overworked. I learned a lot through that experience and um I'm human and it's okay and I'm quite comfortable sharing that with others now and yeah I don't I don't feel a sense of shame about that I don't blame myself for it because I know it's not my fault um yeah I don't know if that answers your question though no it really does but as I warned you it triggers further curiosity in me (laughs) (laughs) You've you've said authentic authenticity a few times, or you've mentioned authentically turning up, or or the concept of authenticity. Has self compassion been tied to that concept of authenticity? I think so. Yeah, actually, I can share an experience that I had during my yoga teacher training. Um, it was after I think week one or week two. Um, it was um, towards the end of the day. Um, I was in Shavasana, which is the the my favorite pose at the end. I'm really yep, good at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so it had been a particularly intense practice, and yeah, lying in Shavasana, and I just felt this like connection, deep connection to myself and to everything. It was. I share it with people sometimes and they kind of go, yeah, it sounds like it was drug-induced or something. Yeah, it felt different to anything I'd ever experienced before. Like I was always, um, you know, into yoga and meditation, all that stuff, but I hadn't ever had that kind of um, deep connection. It was like a oneness, um, if that makes sense. And I think since having that experience, like, and I've been able to kind of, um tip into it at times like probably not to that level of intensity of oneness but um whenever I'm suffering now it's like I can kind of connect to that a little bit more and feel like it's okay like I don't know how to explain it in a way that's going to make sense sorry you can cut this no, out I wouldn't dare and to me, me that does that does make sense <laughs> yeah that does make sense um, sorry it's like it's hard to explain it's like one of those experiences that I guess I know yeah others have experienced similar I don't know have either of you ever had this kind of experience before like during a meditation or during a yoga practice or anything like that I have I have during meditation um I'm a formal meditation guy it's it's kind of my thing I I enjoy doing it and um I think I don't know what came up for me is it's I think there's there's the Buddhist idea of sort of cessation of thought or you know cessation of processing and I've definitely attained that similar <laughs> to yourself only once and it was a it was a beautiful experience because it was just it felt just more connection embodiment observation rather than participation but there was also a participation element in terms of but that that not so much as me participating with a sense of self there was a participation in terms of an interconnection to others so yeah it resonates with me 
what your experience was. And I've had the exact same experience of trying to explain it and having people going, okay, well, what had you had? And would you survive <laughs> the uh, scrutiny of a drug test? And it's like, actually, I would. Um, but the weird thing is, the weird thing is that it's only ever been once. Um, I've come close and um, yeah. within that was a was a, when I consulted, you know, my teacher, um, he cautioned me against, I sort of went off on this tangent about how wonderful it was and he kind of went, mm, so, and cautioned, I realised what he was, what he was doing later, he was, was cautioning me, well, don't strive to attain that. I was like, oh. Good call because there was an element in experiencing that of going, oh, I have to get back there. That's what I want. Um, and from that Buddhist perspective, it's like, hey, dude, the moment you strive, that ain't that ain't being in the moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a fair point. And I think it's it's not so much about striving for it, but I think what it did was it gave me perspective and it also got me out of my head and into my body. And that's something I really struggle with. I tend to over-intellectualize everything, overthink. I'm a big thinker. My mind doesn't stop. It's always yes. racing. And so that, it was like a surrender. It was like so peaceful. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's something that I think when I do um, consistently practice, that's, I guess it's not so much an end goal because there's never an end goal. It's more just... It helps to silence the inner critic a little. Not silence the inner critic because it's not about getting rid of the inner critic, but it's about slowing it down enough to be able to catch it because otherwise you get caught up in it. And so, yeah, when I'm practising regularly, it helps me to be able to have some distance from it and to be able to decide, okay, is this a thought that I want to go with? Is this something that's going to be helpful for me? Is this going to help me to be effective? what is going to help me to be effective and perhaps then, yeah, moving um, into a thought or a, a behaviour that's going to be more effective or more helpful for me or for others as well, <laughs> yeah. Quite often there's a correlation between being more helpful or kind to yourself or even connecting yeah. to your own needs there's a correlation between that and other people around you ex having a more pleasant experience <laughs> i know that i know that that's been my experience so i am also curious about needs i find needs also a fascinating subject um did did your insight into your needs shift in this time of suffering and what was that experience like for you? I'm curious. Yeah, well, I do tend to subjugate my needs and being in the helping profession, I do tend to be very other focused. Mm. And so this experience, yeah, most certainly, and it still is, like it's something that's still happening. Like I've had flare-ups and things like that. So it it has helped me to tune into my body a lot more and to be okay with not necessarily putting my needs first, but, and yeah, not, not, not feeling as guilty, I guess, when I have to do things for myself, um, prioritizing my health and taking care of myself. Like that doesn't mean that I don't care about others and that I'm, you know, not yeah it's not it's not being selfish is what I'm trying to say it's not self-indulgent to care for the self it's essential mm. yeah we can't hold space for others we can't be there for others if we um, are not caring for ourselves first I guess it's helping the helper is it not yeah it's it's a balancing act I think it's like um, you know that meditation in in for me, out for you, um, just kind of, it's never a hundred percent in balance, but we try. <laughs> <laughs> As you were talking, then I thought of that meditation of in for me and out for oh. you, which, you know, it's, I use that so often in, in, when I'm, um, with clients with, with my own self is yeah. well, breath in for me, back out for them. And I can be sort of back in the room. I can kind of be reconnected again yeah. if I feel like I'm getting sort of pull too much into my own chatter or their experience or whatnot. 
It's yeah. a fascinating – in for me, out for you is a fascinating technique for me because it can transcend both formal and informal practice. So I enjoy it because as I'm, as I'm sitting in, in, on the cushion – I like to incorporate something like that as I'm starting to go into my meditation, even if it is just a pattern interrupt and stops Quentin Tarantino up here writing too many compelling scripts and narratives. However, I've also used it in an informal sense, particularly under duress. So listeners will will know that I, you know, worked with worked with incarcerated learners. A, a custodial environment can be pretty challenging in the moment being in a moment of duress and being able to just go to in, in, for, in for me, out for you, has been really handy because I can simply occupy the space or be in the space longer or, or, or more present. I even used to use it to stop being uh, – I used to be an aggressive driver. I'm not anymore, but it used to be a thing that I would practice and it was like anything, a journey. Someone would cut me off and I'd be going, oh, yeah, you know, this, that, and up your – you know, up your so-and-so, and then I'd go, oh, wait, one for me, one for you, one for – and gradually, over time, quite honestly, it, it shifted, and my experience now, very seldom a peep out of me driving. You can completely cut me off, and I'll just be like, oh, yeah, that was happening. Um, do you have, Kerry, do you have some other MSC uh, toolboxes, kits, skill sets that you would you would use in those informal moments because a lot a lot of our listeners love love a little hint or a tip about some strategies in duress. Mm. I like to journal, um, and often when I do journal, I will ask myself, "What do I need?" and that helps me to connect a bit more to what it is that I need, and so I'll just sit down and write and see what comes up because I think that's a question we don't often ask ourselves, like what do I need? It's, it, it really helps you to connect with what it is that you need and to reflect on it. So that's something I like to do. Um, in terms of mindful self-compassion techniques, I guess, med- yeah, meditation obviously, practising that, practising yoga, um, I like to do walks in nature too, so I guess it's a more informal mm-hmm. one, but connecting with nature is really good and helps to ground me. They're the main ones, I think, that I use. There's, I guess there's other techniques that I can suggest to clients that I don't, because I don't use every single technique. Depends on the context really and what it is that's coming up and thinking what is going to be the, the most appropriate strategy for that situation. With regards to my um, suffering and what helped me, it was talking a lot and like sharing my experience with others was really helpful, connecting with other people who were going through similar things, like other people who had experienced autoimmune disease, um, reading books about it. Um, yeah, I think that, and yoga. Um, but it was, a, it was, there were times when I'd show up on my yoga mat and I couldn't do a sun salutation because I was Mm. too tired and that was okay. And I was, I would sort of respond to myself then and say, it's okay. Even if I just lie on my yoga mat, this is okay. And it's, it's still valuable. So even if I couldn't do a full 90 minute yoga practice and I would show up and maybe do, you know, a few sun salutations or maybe some yin yoga, that was still really beneficial for me. So um adjusting my expectations was uh-huh. a big one yeah being okay with doing less or or yeah um yeah just adjusting expectations i guess and seeing the value in doing less because that's not something that i had ever really done before <laughs> like my whole life <laughs> it was go 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 it was yeah get through school did really well in school, then got into uni, then uh, master's degrees. I had, yeah, all the placements and then work experience. So I'd never really taken, um, you know, extended time to actually just heal. And so slowing down, reducing my um, my hours and being able to achieve that balance in life was what was really helpful for me, giving myself permission to do that. Yeah, definitely. Controlling expectations or being mindful about expectations is a 
fascinating idea for me. Some of the ancient teachers, you know, give us quotes like, in the absence of expectation, there can be no disappointment, which is a wonderful thing. And I get the idea, but it's like, well, even expecting to have no expectations is an expectation. So what do I do now? What do you notice in terms of expectations with with yourself? So it might just be, hey, the practice today is going to be 20 minutes instead of 90 minutes. My expectations of myself tend to be quite high. Like naturally I have really high expectations. And then sometimes that extends out to others, <laughs> which is problematic. And so, yeah, when I notice that inner judgment or that inner critic, oh, you didn't do your full um, 90 minute prep, well, that's okay because I still show it showed up. Um, something I did when I, yeah, when I first got diagnosed is I wrote myself a self compassion letter. So I, um, wrote to my, well, to the, to the illness, but I also wrote it to myself and to my younger self as well. Um, I, ha- I guess I haven't shared this part of it, but when, um, so when I did get diagnosed, what happened was some of my trauma got triggered up. So some childhood experiences. So when my mum got um, her thyroid cancer, I was two. When I first got diagnosed, I started to have flashbacks of uh, a particular experience. So then I, yeah, it actually helped me to go back and to actually show compassion to that two-year-old girl who went through that um, time, yeah, suffering, I guess, of having my mother going through a really difficult um, experience. And it helped me to connect to my mother too, in a way, like it helped her to be able to empathise with her and some of the struggles and things that she'd been through that I previously didn't have that insight into so going through it myself not to the same extent obviously but yeah it kind of gave me some insight into that so I guess that's another strategy a self-compassion letter it doesn't have to necessarily be structured but it's just sort of writing yeah either to your younger self or to the the part of yourself that is suffering There's a a couple of different ways you can do it. But, yeah, I found that to be really helpful. And kind of framing that as if you, you know, because if it's a difficult concept to connect to, you can do it as if you were writing a letter to a friend who was suffering. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. And speaking of that, sometimes just asking what would I say to a friend, that's a good one that I use even just, yeah, throughout the day when I notice that my inner critic's coming up. So what what would you say to a friend? Yeah. Yeah. It kind of helps to soften the tone a little bit. I wouldn't be saying that to anyone else, so why am I saying that to myself? (laughs) Why is that okay? Why is it okay to speak to ourselves like that when we just wouldn't do it to others? Probably Kristen Neff's biggest gift is just that that one concept because – I have a hard time sometimes, as no doubt you guys do. Sometimes it can be a hard thing explaining self-compassion, you know, mindful self-compassion. It can be really difficult to explain to someone. And, you know, you get some faces, people are like, but the moment you, in my experience, it's always been the moment I get to, yeah, but why do we talk to ourselves? And would we do that to a friend? Every time people will at least go, hmm. That's some. That's a something to be considered, um, and I've said it to people before, and they've sort of come back to me and gone, "Wow, like that one really landed with me." Uh, like it, it took a while to settle, but I went away and I thought about that. Um, speaking of MSC, I'm fortunate. Well, on so many ways to be married to the to the wonderful person that I am, because she's also an MSC teacher and. What's it like when you're starting to use the skill sets of something like MSC or you know NVC or something like that and, and your partner doesn't have the same level of training? Is that challenging or, uh, yeah, I'm curious because I've asked Jan about that before. Um, I'm curious what your experience is with that, Kerry. And would your partner sort of say, look, things have shifted I'm laughing because sometimes I say to my partner, I say, you should have been a psychologist because, or maybe he's picked it up from me because I will, um, you know, say these things to him when he's stressed out. But the other day I was having a stressed out moment and he said, oh, let's let's do a visualisation. <laughs> <laughs> what a dude. Go back and 
you know, let's think about that last walk we did in nature. Describe it to me. And <laughs> and then I started saying and then went through it and I was like, oh, that was really helpful. Thanks. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he's not a psychologist and he, ha- he doesn't have a mental health background, but for him, yeah, I guess compassion just comes naturally for him and I guess that's why I married him. Nice. <laughs> Nice. And look, even better if he's got high caps, you can just swipe, swipe and say, thank you for that. (laughs) And check in the mail. (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. Um, We always do meander our way towards a silver lining question, but it's kind of like, I feel like you've outlined that already in terms of like, wow, like this experience has kind of allowed you to process some stuff from the basement in terms of your, your youth. It's potentially allowed you to process the idea of saying, hey, maybe maybe I do need to slow down. Maybe I do need to. Um, yeah. Is it insensitive to say that there's been a silver lining to this bucket of suffering you've had thrust upon you? No, I think you're right. I mean, I'm actually really grateful for it. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say considering what I've been through, but there are so many silver linings. Like I feel so much stronger, more connected to myself. Like I feel more comfortable speaking my truth. Yeah, I guess just the resilience of it, you know, and I think, yeah, there's that concept of post-traumatic growth. I mean, some days I think I'm not quite there yet. Like there are some days where I'm like, I just wish this would go away. I wish I could be normal. I'm doing um, inverted commas. There's no such thing as normal, but yeah, sometimes I think, oh, I wish that I could get to a point where, um, you know, the levels would just be stable and I'd never have a flare up. But that's sometimes, yeah, it's not always realistic. And I, and yeah, I mean, hopefully I do get to a point where I can be stable, but it's given me, yeah, definitely deeper insight into human suffering and. I guess it's forced me to be more comfortable with being human and the messiness of being human and showing up imperfectly. And that was something that I really struggled with. So this experience has helped. Well, it's forced me to do that because I don't have a choice. Like I do still show up and I do still, um, you know, try and get through everything that I need to get through. And um, it's made me see that, you know, The world doesn't collapse around you like when you show up imperfectly, when you are just yourself, when you surrender. Most people don't actually even notice that you're having an off day. Like if having an off day, like I'd often say it and say, oh, today I'm having a bit of an off day today. But most of the time people don't even see it. Like it's such an internal experience. It's how you're feeling. Like Jad said before, you know, you might have a really loud inner critic on a particular day, but other people might not even see it. It's not written on your forehead. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, to answer the question, yeah, lots of silver linings there. And, yeah, it's good to reflect on that too because sometimes, you know, you can get caught up on, oh, it's such a bad thing that's happened and poor me and all of that stuff. Um, but at the same time, I guess it's, yeah, it's it's kind of helped me to connect to myself and that's that is such a gift. Mm. Like mm. it's definitely something that I appreciate like that connection to self and the ability to be kinder to myself. I think that's something that I'm definitely really grateful for. Like I'm not grateful for Hashimoto. <laughs> not, I'm grateful for all the other stuff that's come out of it for sure. <laughs> Kerry, it's, I'm grateful for having you on the show and for showing up so authentically. Um, it's a word you used often throughout this uh, episode. And, you know, one of the things I really liked about following you on Instagram was there was this sort of realness that came through in, in your posts and the things that you kind of shared. Um, and, you know, and I know that that's also difficult in a clinical role to kind of not overshare and to walk this kind of balance between being authentic and, and also you know, respecting um, people's needs to not have everything out there. Um, Anything we've missed that you wanted to kind of cover at all um, on the show today or anything else you wish to share or any upcoming workshops or anything you're doing? Well, first of all, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Um, 
maybe a little bit about boundaries. Like we didn't talk about that and you just brought that up mm. with regards to like professional boundaries. Like I find that really challenging, like showing up authentically but not oversharing. Like this is something that I thought about even with this podcast. Mm. Like I want to share but I and to normalise these experiences but then there's a level of um, professionalism that comes with the role that I hold and not oversharing. So that's a tricky one. Like do either of you have any reflections on that one and like professional boundaries and balancing that with showing up authentically? I'm very mindful of exactly what you said about the concept of tipping between um, oversharing but sort of sharing enough to create a sense of common humanity. And what I tend to do is I, I sort of lean towards saying, look, if I'm oversharing, at its core, it means I'm making the interaction more about me than I am about the, <laughs> the other person. Um, so that's been kind of my, my north star. And I guess working with more of the populations that I work with, there's been actually quite often more value in silence from me. Um, and so sort of compassionate listening has become a key cornerstone practice for, 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 for my interactions with the, with the, with the cohorts that, that I work with. Um, yeah, but that's, that's what I try to keep as my North Star. It's like, come on, man, don't overshare. You're taking the lens off, off the individual. Um, that's my thought. Jad? Oh, it's such a huge thing, isn't it? And I think um, in in a lot of our training, depending on what kind of schools or modalities or where you kind of come from, it's sometimes drummed in really, really hard that, you, you know, you don't share any of your personal stuff and it's not about you. It is about them. So I guess how I approach it. And then there's there's other schools of thought where it's kind of like, no, you need to kind of bring your authenticity in and you need to be kind of congruent and real and, Certainly in my own experience, if I've been in therapy a long time as well as longer than I have been practicing, is sometimes if a, a share that's very real and genuine from a, a, a caring therapist and it's shared for you, not about them, is sometimes a really powerful thing. So I guess these days I try to, like Mike, you were just sort of saying and, and Kerry, you kind of alluded to, is is this going to be helpful for them to hear this? Like, is it going to create a sense of common humanity? Is it going to kind of um, just show a perspective of how something might have shifted or, or changed or, or whatever, something that they can relate to and not just about you communicating as a friend? And, and I have a tendency to overshare, especially when I develop a good rapport with a, with a client. So it is a, it's a really tricky balance and I think an important one to constantly think about. But if we frame it as you know, is this about me or is this about their needs? Mm. And if, if we're a little unsure, it's, it's best to hold back. But I hope that listeners to this will, will find it really reassuring that, you know, that they're not alone and that other people show up for very important kind of roles and have all this background mess going on and that that's okay. That's okay to, yeah. be, to be in that space. Thank you for your, both of your sharings as well, I think. Yeah, and for normalising therapy as well. You know, therapists also have therapists. <laughs> and, uh, and that was something yeah, that really helped me last year too. And my therapist actually did share a little bit about her suffering, which helped to normalise mine as well, and especially coming from another psychologist. Um, that was really helpful. So, yeah, I think... Um, yeah, for sure. I think a little bit of sharing is appropriate. And, and like you said, making sure that it is going to be helpful for them, that it's not about me. It's about, okay, is this sharing going to be helpful for them? Yeah. When I think about sharing and connectivity, I like it from the perspective of removing a power dynamic. I think it's quite handy too. Oh, removing is the wrong word, but reducing the concept of I am western medicine beholden and i will fix your problem i will uh, pathologize you and um and i think also oversharing is more conspicuous when it's done badly i've definitely co-facilitated groups when oversharing has gone bad you know and it, it was a good experience it's that whole 
fools and sages things. It was a good experience for me to see the ripples, the obvious ripples through the group when oversharing was just just a little bit much. And so that's been helpful for me. So that's another thing that I'm often doing is I'm sort of, I'm really looking to making sure that am I seeing any ripples through the group? Gratitude from myself, Kerry, for your willingness to delve into the human condition. I mean, essentially, this podcast, we like to prod at those ideas of, you know, it's kind of hard to be in a human body. So we thank you so much for for sharing these thoughts. And people are finding these skill sets handy, like these tips, these little toolboxes. So I thank you. I thank you for that as well. And this is normally the bit where Jad does the sign off because, again, I'm quite bad with structure. You've asked great questions, by the way. Thank you. You've both done a really good job and it's been really nice to, to speak to both of you and connect. We're really glad to have you on the show, Kerry. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you or uh, follow you on socials or, or reach out and even come in and see you in your work? So I have a website, which is www.bupsychology, so B-E-Y-O-U, psychology.com.au. And I do also have um, social media. So there's the BU Psychology handle for Instagram, and I'm pretty sure it's the same for Facebook. Awesome. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Take care of yourselves and see you soon. Toodles. Mm-hmm.